looking at verse 18, 18 to 17. A section begins in verse 8 with the voice of my beloved, or listen, the voice of my beloved, and ends in verse 17 upon the mountains of Ether. We're taking a break in our sermon series. I received a few questions as I speak with people in the congregation about the Christian life. And what's on my mind is the assurance that Christ loves the Christian and the intimate relationship that Christ has with the Christian. And that's why I want to turn to this song. How important it is to have that relationship with Christ and how important it is to know that he loves the Christian and to know that personally for yourself and to be assured of it and for it to be a real experience in your Christian life. I don't know how much you know about this song. It's a very special song. It opens at the beginning of the entire book, telling us how to understand this song. It says, this is the song of songs, which is Solomon's. So, Solomon wrote this song, and it is a song of love. It's an emotional song, I'm sure you saw that as you read it. And there is a danger of us viewing this as a human poem, a poem about the love between a man and a woman, or the love in marriage. And that's certainly in there, it's based upon an engagement and a marriage. These two people are engaged, and they're longing to be together, and then they're married by the end of the book. And it certainly says some things about the beauty of that love. But I'm sure if you are married, you know that human marital love isn't always like this. This rises above human marital love. This is not simply a poem that tells us about romance between a man and a woman, but it's written by Solomon and it's recorded in scripture because it has something to do with God. And Solomon was given unparalleled wisdom and knowledge in his young days when he was assigned to replace his father David as the king of God's people. And he's a type of Christ. He becomes king as a type of Christ. And David is a type of Christ warring with the Philistines, warring with Saul, a type of Christ in his war and in his conflict with sin and Satan and his enemies. David was the beloved of God and he was happy in his relationship with God, but he was surrounded by conflict. Solomon wasn't. He passes the baton to his son and Solomon takes the throne at a time of great peace and unity in Israel. The only time in history that the church was truly united, apart from maybe the days of the apostles. The church was one in the days of Solomon. Israel was one. And there was no war. There was no conflict. All of the pagan nations around Israel submitted and were at peace with Israel. And they had a friendship with Solomon. And they sought his wisdom. And they respected him and paid tribute to Solomon. And in a a blaze of light, uh, Israel existed as she should exist. 
just for one generation and she's never been the same again it's almost as though God blessed Israel in that moment that it would become clear to us there's something we can look at to see this is what the church ought to be and this is who her king truly is Solomon reigned in peace and in love and in great wisdom he didn't have normal human wisdom he wasn't like a normal king or politician he asked God for wisdom and God gave him a supernatural um, deposit of wisdom and knowledge and he understood animals and plants and nations and politics and even love just for that moment in his life later he went very wrong but at this moment he has an understanding of love and he sees this love in light of God if we want to confirm that this song is not simply about human love we can see in chapter 8 that Solomon says that the love that is burning in this song is the, the flame of Jehovah the flame of Jehovah in chapter 8 not a normal love he says it's a flaming flaming love of Jehovah um, that shows us that this love is connected to God and we would expect that we can't come to this as a biblical book and think that it's merely about a man and a woman for the scriptures speak of Christ and Solomon is filled with the spirit of Christ the spirit that wrote every book of scripture to reveal some aspect of the kingdom and some aspect of the king to us and he takes the spirit the spirit takes the subject of love and he tells the Old Testament church this is what the love of God is like this is who the bride is this is who the bridegroom is and Christ told those two in the road to Emmaus that's what this is their eyes were closed they couldn't see and beginning with Moses and the prophets he opened the Old Testament scriptures to them to show them that this is all about him and if the Holy Spirit writes a song and God is a songwriter if the Holy Spirit writes a song that is called the song of songs about love we would expect that the Holy Spirit would have something to say about the love of God in Christ towards the church and the Christian that's what Solomon means in chapter 1 verse 1 the song of songs First Kings tells us that Solomon had the time amongst all that he was doing to write a thousand and five songs he wrote a thousand and five songs and this one was the greatest of all the songs the song above all songs the holy of holies in the temple is the most holy place in the temple when we see that Christ is king of kings he is the king among all kings and this song of songs is the greatest song in the Bible it is God's greatest song written by the wisest man apart from Christ who has ever lived and Solomon took the throne 
having written this song of love. And remember that Solomon is the son of David. He is David's son, his seed, and takes the throne of God and rules over the church. This song about his love for his bride is a song about Christ's love for his bride. The love of David's son for this poor woman is the love of the son of David for the Christian. So this is a song that the heart of the believer knows. And if you are a believer, you will find yourself in this song. This song is your experience because the Spirit has shed abroad the love of Christ in your heart. And there is a love and a desire there for him that experiences much conflict, much difficulty, and much pain. And when you read this song, you are aware that you find your love in here. And this becomes your song. And that's what this song is about. It's actually five songs merged into one. Five or six songs merged into one big song. And each song begins with a distance. The believer, the, the, the Shulamite woman, is far from her Lord and lover. She's experiencing a separation and a distance at the beginning of each stanza of the song. And then she searches for him in distress, and then she finds him. And at the end of each part, they embrace and they're close, and she knows that he loves her. That is a believer. People ask me about assurance and difficulties with knowing Christ's nearness to them. And hearing his voice and, and, and knowing these things in their mind, but not feeling that love from themselves or from him. There's a kind of coldness and objectivity to it. And they say, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know that I love the Lord? I feel no love right now. Well, this song was designed to show us how that happens. There is distance at points in the Christian's life between them and their Lord. And they must seek him and find him and embrace him. That's the key to understanding the song. Distance, searching, and then closeness. That comes out in the verses we read together. From verse 8 to 17, we have the second of these five or six songs. We have the second one. And you'll see that it begins with that separation. And you'll know this if you're a Christian, that you've experienced this separation. You'll see that it begins, listen, it is the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping on the mountain sleeping upon the hills. Now, what's happened there is she hears his voice when she hasn't been hearing it. It comes out of nowhere, and she hears it. 
and it startles her because it was gone and he's coming over the hills and the mountains to be with her again there's a distance between her and him there are mountains that have risen up by themselves or that she has caused there are mountains between her and her beloved you'll see it throughout uh, the passage that this um, separation is there that she's looking for him and he comes and he looks through the windows she sees him but he's not inside and she has to find him again one of the keys to understanding that is the last word in the chapter the mountains of Peter. And that's a clue that the Holy Spirit puts in there for us, for us to unlock the Song of Solomon. Beether means separation. This is a, a device in a song that has meaning behind the word. She's not just naming a mountain. She's saying, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, my beloved, come and come over these mountains of separation. There is separation between us. Throughout the rest of the Song of Solomon, we see this separation, this lack of closeness. Um, for example, in chapter 3, at the beginning, by night on my bed I sought the one I loved, but I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now and go about the city, and I will go into the streets and the squares and seek the one I loved. The watchman found me, who go about the city, and I said to them, have you seen the one that I love? In chapter 5, verse 2 onwards, she's asleep in her bed and he knocks on the door and she's sluggish and she doesn't wake up to open the door and then she eventually goes to open and he's gone and she's anxious and she can't find her beloved. And in verse 6 of that chapter, I opened for him. He had turned away and he was gone. My heart leapt when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called for him, but he gave me no answer. The Holy Spirit is painting for us here, as Solomon writes, painting for us here what happens between us and God. And that's the way the Jews understood it. They understood this book to be about them and Jehovah. They read it at Passover every year as the greatest book in the Bible that describes God's love for them. And it becomes for the Christian a description of our Christian life. As you read there that she's rushing and anxious and searching for her Lord, that happens to the Christian. That's a description of what will happen in our lives. A loss of communion with Christ. A loss of affection. And therefore a loss of power and assurance. When he's not there in his presence and his power. When we first come to Christ, there is usually a lot of liberty and he stamps us with assurance. He reveals himself so fully to assure the new Christian, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are mine. It's not always the case, but a lot of people, when they first discover Christ, everything's new, everything's fresh, they see it with clarity for the first time, but it does not always remain that way. In fact, I would say, in no case does it remain that way at all. 
And if you have come to see God and come to know him and come to know Christ, you will know the difference between when God is present and when he's not present like this. I'm not talking about that he's present everywhere. He's present everywhere in the world. There is a way in which that's true. But I'm talking about his loving, relational presence. When God is present and Christ reveals himself at the beginning of the Christian life or throughout it, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable when the Lord comes near to the Christian. Everything stops. When he arrests us in prayer or in worship or before his word, everything stops. All other considerations are, are left alone. When you have been living in monotony and without knowing his power or his love being poured out in your soul in that way, and when he begins to reveal himself, everything else just stops. You notice a change in the atmosphere of your soul. It has to be that way. How can you interact with an eternal God and not have everything else stop and lose attention to most other things? Because when God comes, what else is there? Before your soul, what else is there when you come into contact with the eternal Father or the eternal Son through the eternal Spirit? And the immensity of God is felt it is felt by the soul and it's hard to describe I can't describe it with the touch of the hand or the description of words how can I describe what a soul feels but a soul does feel it it's like Moses when he said he knew who God was and he'd seen the burning bush but on the mountain Moses said Lord show me your glory show me who you really are reveal yourself to me in Christ and when Christ appeared to Moses in glory he appeared with heaviness and immensity and light and beauty. That's what glory is. Show me how heavy you are. The, gl the glory in the Old Testament means to be heavy. When God is present, there is a heaviness that it is imposing. We can't just pretend God's there and say to people, oh, God's with me, and just make that up. When God's there, he's there. It makes a difference to the church, but to the Christian. We have a saying in Scotland that it's better felt than told. It's better experienced than told. It's hard to tell you, but if you know God, if he's revealed himself to you, you will know something about his presence. You know that in love anyway. How can I describe to you how I love someone else? It's very difficult to do. I can say some things about it, but I cannot communicate the feeling and the depth. And neither can you for your spouse. How much more true when Christ presents himself. It can't be fully described, but it is real. And when he's present in that way... <laughs> When you come into contact with him and he comes into your room or he, he comes through the reading or the preaching of the word or in worship, everything just alters all of a sudden. God changes everything when he's present and we know that he's there and we enjoy it even if it's uncomfortable and it fills us with a power and a, a confidence and an assurance that we have met God. 
and we don't doubt that and it fills us with a sense that he's there he's august he's glorious but he loves us for that is how he reveals himself so that's what it's like when he does reveal himself and if you've known that how awful it is when it's not there for a period of time sometimes a long time if that's not there you're just there in the routine and the monotony of going through the motions in the Christian life and in your prayers and in worship it's just not there in the same way and she knows this she doesn't hear his voice in the same way he's over the mountains there are the mountains of separation between them and he needs to come she calls it in verse 11 a winter a winter for behold the winter is past and the rain is over and gone now the flowers have appeared in the land when he is not there at the beginning of his song it's a winter a spiritual kind of winter and do you recognize that uh, Christian brother and sister however long you've been following him do you recognize these differing periods when he's not there in this way it is a kind of winter um, that he appoints he appoints this in the Christian's experience and when he is not there just like in our winters things look very different the trees are not green there's not fruit everywhere water isn't as easy to access it's frozen there is not fruit abounding around you or in you and the water stops flowing and the land of your soul freezes over or it becomes there is a chill in the air and winter comes upon the land that season comes upon you and it's not like it was in summer there isn't the blazing light of the sun there isn't the sound of all the animals chirping and thriving there isn't the sight of all the grain and the fruit in the church or in your own soul a kind of winter has come upon her and God does appoint that for the Christian and if you are an exercised Christian that examines yourself and thinks about your Christian experience you'll see things like this it's, it's in the Bible there many of our brothers and sisters in the Bible experience this for various reasons that God appoints this Job experienced it um, through no fault of his own at the time and he experienced a winter where he couldn't see God and he said I look to the left and I do not see him I look to the right and I cannot find him I go forward and he is not there I move backwards and he is not there Job experienced that absence and that isolation that the Shulamite woman here is experiencing Moses and Elijah and Joseph and others they all experienced this Moses in the wilderness looking after sheep for 40 years not knowing the power of God and then God appeared to him in a bush Elijah on his own for 3 years in a cave in a brook being fed by ravens while the church fell apart 
And Elijah at one point asks for his life to be taken away because there is no power and love and assurance from God. It's a day of difficulty in Israel and in the church. It's like a winter. Joseph was taken from his family. When he had all great promises from God, he was taken and isolated into the winter of Egypt. He was taken away from everyone he knew and loved. And in a, in a land where he didn't know the language and he didn't know anyone or the culture. And not only was that difficult, but then he was plunged into a dungeon all by himself. These were all Christians. And sometimes God does it because we have sinned and he needs to stretch us and deal with the sin. Christ definitely removes himself when there are certain kinds of sins that he dealt with. He, he steps back. He steps back. And as the prophet Hosea says, I will allure my people into the wilderness and then speak to them and restore them. That's what God does when we become lethargic, when we become lukewarm, when we don't care or we're living in disobedience, then God removes us into our wilderness and he will speak to us in the wilderness where there are no distractions, where there aren't thousands of people to distract us. He allures us into a personal kind of wilderness, but he will speak to us in grace to reveal himself to change that sin. But it's not only sin. Sometimes God does it just to increase our graces. He, he, he steps back to encourage prayer. He steps back to encourage obedience. He steps back to exercise our souls in seeking him because when he's right there we become less concerned about seeking him he removes himself like Christ does at each stage of this song he removes himself behind mountains he removes himself from her house he knocks on the door she doesn't respond quickly enough so he removes himself and she has to find him so here we have a description of the believer's whole experience in that she knows the Lord in that she has a love for the Lord, in that she has spent time with him before. But, at the beginning of this second song, he's not there, and I've told you uh, what it is for him to be there, and sometimes why he is not there. So what happens when Christ does remove himself and um, does this in our lives and we're aware of it, a lack of assurance, a lack of reality, a lack of closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does this go once he's removed himself? Well, he comes, he comes, secondly, he comes. Listen, the voice of my beloved, in verse 8. Listen, it's the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes upon the mountains and leaping upon the hills. That's what changes when Christ reveals himself to us again. He speaks he speaks, notice that, it's not just that he comes, but it's that the voice is heard. Christ is a speaker. 
he speaks words to his people. When those words aren't there, sometimes his people pretend that they are there and that he is speaking. But when he speaks, it's unmistakable. And it is voice that is uh, known. Um, he comes to her here and she hears all his words. It is the voice of my beloved. And then in verse 10, he begins to tell her what to do. Rise up, my love, my beautiful one. Come away with me. The winter is past. He stirs her up and he speaks to her and he says, I'm here. Come now. I was away on a trip, but now come with me. We can walk together through the valley and through the vineyards because the winter is gone. This is a good time for us to be together. He speaks to the Christian soul. He cares about the Christian soul. He doesn't leave the Christian soul to abandon the Christian, but to teach a lesson that the whole time, though there's a loss of presence, there's not a loss of love. And he comes to speak. How does he do that? There's definitely two uh, ways in the Bible in this coming with the voice. There's two ways that you know that Christ does speak, though we need to be reminded of them. He speaks in his providence and his word. And that's part of the Christian experience. Uh, Christ is in charge of all of our providence and the providence of all that exists. But especially your life, you may think there's a lot of kind of um, meaningless mundane things in your life but actually Christ is in control of them all so let's forget about the whole church just think about you he, he, he has made your path uh, he has put you to live with who you live with he, he is overseeing your emotional and spiritual condition and every little event that happens each day is actually from Christ and he communicates often through that providence it is all a communication of care, but there are certain times where he will do something that is very obvious, and he will communicate something, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but things happen to us, sometimes when we're not listening. He will speak to us using his hand rather than just his word. And if you have children, sometimes speaking to them doesn't work. And then barriers need to be put up and rules need to be established. And sometimes even physical discipline is necessary. We don't always listen to God and listen to Christ. Uh, in our own foolishness and numbness and our lack of knowledge, sometimes he can be saying something and it's just passing our heads. But here, he comes back in and there is a providential uh, speaking. She, when he says here, uh, this is my voice and I'm speaking to you, she can see things change. She can see that things are growing and vines are growing. Something changes around her and she knows that there is a change of the weather. That's the same with us. And we have to watch God's problems. What is he saying to you right now? Do you even think about that on a daily basis? Or are things just happening to you and you use things and you buy things and you make decisions? But what is God saying in all of these things when a difficulty comes in or um, an unexpected event happens as you're going, you've got your plan for the day and out of the blue, an unexpected event happens. That event is from Christ. What is it saying? Because throughout the Bible, the believers have to watch this. And when Abraham 
There's a wonderful example of this in the Bible. When Abraham sent a servant to find a wife for Isaac, the servant went to, traveled hundreds of miles and went to a well and set a cast to see who the, the wife would be. He saw Rebecca and she watered the camels and he was very impressed. And then he was amazed to discover that this woman, who he thought, this is a good candidate for Isaac, when he interacted with her, he figured out she was actually related to Isaac. She was actually part of Abraham's family. And she was at least in a halfway of the faith. She wasn't a complete pagan. And he was amazed at this. In this foreign country, I've been led to this woman, and she is behaving in this way, and she would make a suitable wife for Isaac. And then I speak with her, and lo and behold, she's, she's related to Isaac. And Abraham's family is nearby. And when he goes and tells her parents this unexpected series of events, do you know what the parents say? He asks, can she come with me? And the parents say, this is all for the Lord. And we can say nothing about it. Let her decide. So you see, they recognized this was not a normal event. And that God's providence had spoken and they say, this is of the Lord. Is that happening to you? Or is there silence in your life? Maybe, maybe um, you're professing Christ, but actually there is nothing in your life that you can say, that's him speaking to me. I'm not saying that's so, but is there a complete silence in your life? Is your entire faith just only in your head? Your heart can sing a song like this, and you can never say, this is of the Lord, and this is for me, and it has his message in it. Christ speaks through his providence, and he speaks through his word, and that's unmistakable when he speaks through his word. When he speaks through the preaching or the reading of his word, when he does, and he owns it, and the spirit of authenticates it and no one will leave or close their Bible with any doubt that God has spoken. We read the Bible a lot and we listen to sermons. But that doesn't always mean that God is speaking. It doesn't mean that at all. Amos says there's a time in Israel and in the church where a famine of the word of God comes. A famine of the hearing of the word of God. God can remove his voice and they still have the Bible and we still have the Bible. But there is a universal difference between a nation or church filled with Bibles and a Christian heart and church that is filled with the voice of Christ. There is a difference when he speaks to you. You can't mistake it. And I, I'm not going to attempt to explain that to you. The Spirit says himself that when he speaks, the word comes to you with an authenticating power from the Spirit himself, and it leaves that Christian in no doubt, and that can happen even here, even here. My ears may be closed, and your ears may be closed, but there may be a Christian here who is hearing the voice of Christ right now. And we all may leave and say, I don't think Christ spoke today. But there may be one person or ten people or whoever, and they, they may know Christ spoke to me. And I may ask them, how do you know that? And it's none of my business, really. Because that's between the Spirit of God and them. And the Spirit has made very clear to them as they've heard the Word explained that it has come to them 
with the authenticity of the Spirit of God and the Spirit, and they can leave here saying, the voice of my beloved. This is the voice of my beloved speaking to me. So there can be separations, but then he comes with his voice and he speaks to us in events and he speaks to us through the word and the preaching of the word my dear friend my dear man or woman we're, we're here for eternal reasons and we have serious questions to ask ourselves always has Christ ever spoken to you? Ever has he ever spoken to you? And that's an issue of assurance. And someone may say to me, I feel he is not speaking with me, and I doubt whether I'm even a Christian. But my question to that person would be, have you ever heard his voice to you in love? Because if you have, you are a Christian. You are his wife because he has spoken to you and you're just going through a period where you're not hearing it as much. And that's good for that person that they have that assurance. But what if that person has never heard God and they have never heard Christ? What an awful thing and that's a sure sign of spiritual death to not have heard from their creator who's all around them but he never speaks to them because they're strangers and enemies search yourself friend as I search myself has Christ ever spoken to me has he ever spoken to you there's that awful thing in the Old Testament when King Saul interacted with God all the time he was chasing around Samuel asking for a word from the Lord he was the king of Israel but he wasn't saved and every time God told him to do something every time God interacted with him Saul seemed to get worse and he seemed to go more wrong and, and then he was going to lose the kingdom and he consulted witchcraft he consulted a medium and that didn't get him anywhere and then it said he cried out to the Lord but the Lord answered him not Saul never heard Christ not in love and in marriage and in salvation he never heard and the awful thing after that is that it says after that that Samuel spoke to him no more Samuel spoke to him no more it's an awful thing for a king of Israel the king of God's church you never heard the gracious loving voice of God have you my dear friend have you that's all that matters that's the only thing that, that matters that's what defines who you are and I am there's lots of other things we put up as important but the truth is all that matters is do I know God or I, do I not know God that's it that, that's the eternal question of the eternal consequence do I even know this God same thing happened in when this voice comes in providence and word not only Saul but there's a New Testament example Herod King Herod who murdered all the children his son who interviewed Christ and Christ had spoken to the Sanhedrin he'd been tried twice by the Sanhedrin and then he spoke to Pilate and he was more than willing to speak to Pilate he was willing to give Pilate a chance 
Pilate was ignorant. He was willing to interact with Pilate and to tell him, you need this. This is is going to make you famous for all eternity, Pilate. You need to hear this, Pilate. But Pilate didn't want to deal with him and send him to Herod. But let Herod decide this. And Herod was a fool and an idiot. And Christ was dragged before Herod. And Herod asked him to do tricks and miracles. And Herod wanted to see this Jesus of Nazareth. And there's the awful words that Christ answered him not. He spoke not a word to Herod. My dear friend, the bride here rejoices at the voice of spring that comes into her life. She can see him at work with his hand. She is beginning to hear his voice. Saul and Herod never truly heard the voice, have you? And when that voice comes, its effects are clear in the believer's heart and in the church. You see in verse 11, 12, and 13 that when Christ's voice comes, it brings growth and fertility and life and color. And verse 12 and 13, the flowers have appeared in the land, and the time for pruning the vines is here. The turtle dove has been heard, and the fig tree is ripening figs. The vines in blossom, they smell good. Rise, my darling, and come with me to this place. When the Lord speaks, as in many ways he's so reluctant to do in our generation when he speaks to the church and speaks to the believer all of a sudden you see color come back you see vitality come back life and health and joy and excitement and the church puts forth her figs and her vines and you start to see souls born again and you see Christians with the fruits of the spirit coming out of them as a vine and the smell of those beautiful fruits of the spirit filling a church or a congregation all the fruits of God and all the productivity comes because the sun has risen and is shining again on these trees and vines and all of a sudden you see life and vitality and action in the vine that's what happens to her when he comes and that's what will happen to us if we look at ourselves and assess if we're in a winter or a spring are the fruits there, is the life there is the power there, are the new births there, or are they not and his voice comes in providence and word has he spoken to you, or is he silent to you but take assurance Christian that Christ truly loves you and if you are not hearing that voice the way you once did it is a winter and you must long for spring when he does come and speak and enliven he comes suddenly and with sovereignty 
that surge. He comes sovereignly and suddenly. And I, we, we really have to understand this if we're going to understand our own spiritual experience. Christ doesn't give any warning here. He literally appears out of the blue. And in this case, he doesn't come even because the believer is trying and asking him to come. Sometimes that's the case, and we ought to pray, but here, Christ comes to his bride, his believer, who doesn't have the sense or the strength to be asking him to come back. She is mourning. She, she knows he's not there. She's in a weakened, unassured state. And she's almost paralyzed and frozen by it. And yet, he comes in his sovereignty. He just comes, and it's very sudden, and the life begins to flow very suddenly. You see, um, any time the resurrected Lord appeared in the New Testament, it was always sudden. Thomas was depressed. The disciples were depressed. And then it says, and he appeared in their midst in the room. The ones on the road to Emmaus are just walking along, and you'll see it's kind of it's kind of humorous in a way the way Luke writes it. And he, someone came alongside them and started walking with them. It was the risen Lord, but he just came out of nowhere, didn't announce himself, but there, there he was. One moment their hope was all gone, and they're being paralyzed by doubts and fears and a complaining spirit about how it was all finished. And then out of nowhere, there is the Lord. He just comes suddenly. That's uh, that's described in the way that Christ. Um, speaks about himself here that he comes leaping uh, on the mountains and leaping upon uh, the hills. Behold, he is coming, verse 8, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Uh, when he, this, uh, this is Christ revealing himself in a love song to us. Christ is telling us here, when I come, um, I'm enthusiastic about it. You don't just see me in the distance walking slowly. When he comes, he's almost in a rush to come to the believer after the desertion. He wa- even if we're feeling alone and spiritually dead, the hope for us is that Christ is there and he will sovereignly come back. And when he does so, he will do it enthusiastically and filled with love and anticipation. Christ weeps on the mountains and he skips upon the hills so that he can get over them quickly to get back to the valley where we are. Christ is urgent about coming back to us as a doctor is urgent about healing a patient. He comes uh, with uh, that love and with that urgency and what a a liberating, assuring thing it is just to hear that to hear as a, a believer that is experiencing a distance and a, and a dryness of soul and a lack of any real flowing power and love and spiritual vitality in our life right now or in our church. 
he is the society of himself. When we look at him, we can't just look at God, an evangelical God who's in heaven and we don't understand what he's doing. We have a father and a son, Christ. And this Christ's heart is human. His emotions are human in a way. And he's filled with a, a longing and an urgency to come to us if we are truly his bride. He, it's exciting to him to be with the loving Christian. Even with all our faults, we are his spouse. And he wants that nearness and he will create that nearness. And he will do what's necessary in our life to cut away all the leaves and to, to, uh, to grate against all the branches of the vine to, to encourage the, the shoots to come up and the grapes to grow. But when they do come, he comes with anticipation, excited, leaping upon the hills to come back to us. He can separate himself. He comes with his voice, providence, and word, creating life and fruitfulness. And his voice is unmistakable. And when he does come, he comes quickly. He comes suddenly, and he comes when he wants to come. Make no mistake, Christ is patient. He can, he can move back from someone for ten years. He can leave denominations for a hundred years. I don't mean abandon them. I mean in this vital presence. There are churches that have existed in the world, and Christ was in them in this way, and they filled the earth with fruit, and they filled continents with fruit, but then they died. And there can be a lack of fruit, sometimes for centuries. Christ will do what he needs to do. Look at what he says in closing. When he does finally come, and this is in verse 14, when he speaks to her, when he's already said that he'll come in fruitfulness, when he comes suddenly, when he comes out of the blue, as he did in the Reformation, or in any of the great revivals that have happened in the Reformed Church. He comes suddenly. What does he find? And what does he say? He finds her like a dove. A dove hiding in the rock. In verse 14, Oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. The beloved bride here is pictured as a dove. And the dove in Israel uh, bored into cliffs on the side of the valley and hid in holes so that the hawks and things wouldn't catch them. And the dove is hiding in that hole in the cleft of the rock. Christ comes and he, he sees her as this dove. The believer knows she's far from him. The believer mourns that she's far from him. The believer hurts and it frustrates her. She does not like that he is far from her. That's a mark of grace. She doesn't like this. She talks about this. This agitates her. 
when someone is not anxious or agitated that God is absent and they say, I don't care, I, I like church and I'm quite happy. When Christ is absent, that person is not a believer. If someone feels nothing when Christ is absent, if it doesn't agitate them or concern them, they are dead. They are dead as a vine that's been pulled out of the ground and left on a heap. They are just wood and leaf. Now the believer can't stand this. The believer mourns. The believer is seeing that somehow my sin caused this. And I am dark and I fail. And whatever my Lord thinks of me, I know that his absence has something to do with me. And she mourns like a dove and hides in the cleft of the rock. She is tender. She is afraid. And our Lord, the King, speaks in love and assurance and tenderness to her. So that she will be confident about his love for her. Even though she feels this way and it hurts and it has damaged her and broken her, he comes and he sees into the hole in the cliff, my dove, come out. It's safe to come out. It's safe to come back to me. I'm back. The work has been done. Now is the time to thrive and to be filled with spiritual power and love and assurance. My dove in the cleft of the rock, hiding in secret, intimidated and hiding, and convicted by your sin. Let me see your face. And let me hear your voice. Yes, Christ's voice is wonderful. But the glorious thing about Christianity is that Christ wants to hear the voice of the sinner. And he loves to hear the voice of the broken and redeemed sinner. Let me see your face. You may think it's ugly. Let me hear your voice. You may think your voice is empty and worthless and that you can't pray. But let me see it and let me hear it. Because your face is, is lovely. Your voice is sweet. You are beautiful. You are my darling. And Christ looks at us in this way. He looks at the believer in this way. When they're humble and contrite, seeking his love, serving him with a genuine love for him, this is the way he looks at it. Yeah, there's all the sin, there's all the problems, but Christ has done a work for us and he's doing a work in us and we are his spouse. We are officially his wife and he loves us and he is transferring his beauty onto us and when he looks at us, there is a way in which he looks at us and says, you are beautiful to me and you will be beautiful to me. Come with me. So, friend, where are you in all of this? Have you ever been deserted by Christ? Have, have you ever identified a distance between you and Christ? Do you even have a dynamic relationship with Christ that involves any of this? And do you long for his presence in your life and soul and his presence once again in the church? Do you long to be assured and filled and powerful in Christ, to know who you are 
I'm to be filled with grace and to be assured Christ is with me. He speaks with me. And I go through each of these experiences with him, not far away, but near to me. Do you know any of this? What must you do? You must come out of the hole in the rock. And Christ is asking, do I ever see your face? Do I ever hear your voice? Are you a lover of mine? Are you my darling? Do you know anything of a marriage to Christ? Let me hear you and let me see you. So even with your frailty, go to him. Let him see you. Let him hear you. He will listen. And to the believer, he always comes back. Amen. May the Lord bless our thoughts upon his glorious word. We'll sing now from Psalm 73. Psalm 73c. You know these words in this psalm, he holds the believer by the right hand and shall guide the believer with his counsel and afterwards receive the believer into glory. If you walk with Christ and you've ever heard his voice, if you mourn his absence because you love him in your soul, then you can sing this because he does hold you by the right hand. Or does he? Let's stand to sing 73C. Oh, 